You know, sometimes things don't work out the way we hope, right? Sometimes things don't work out the way we hope. About 10 days ago, I had big plans for today. I had big hopes for today. About 10 days ago, the New York Yankees had just won (laughs) games three, four, and five of the American League Championship Series against the Houston Astros, and I was a believer. I thought, this is a team of destiny. There's no way they're going to lose game six and seven. They're going to the World Series. And so in faith, I went online and looked for the schedule of when the World Series games would be played in the Bronx, and only three of them would be played there. And they were Friday night, Saturday night, and tonight. And I realized I can't go to the Friday night game. I can't go to the Saturday night game. So my big dreams, my big hopes, my big plans were after this morning's message, I was going to get into my car and drive four and a half hours to the Bronx to watch game five of the World Series. I uh, was so caught up in my excitement that I even ordered a special t-shirt online to wear to the game. This year in the postseason, the Yankees had a unique celebration that they would do when something good happened. They would do something that seems counterintuitive. They would give each other the thumbs down. Now, normally, thumbs down means bad job. But earlier in the season, there was a fan in the stands who was opposing the Yankees. And every time the Yankees scored, he would do this thumbs down. And this picture became very famous. And so the Yankee team adopted this man's form of celebration, made it their own. And so they had these thumbs down signs that they would give to each other. And so I ordered a thumbs down t-shirt. And I was just picturing myself, Yankee Stadium, game five. I've never been to a World Series game before. Had to go. I had big dreams. I had big hopes. But sometimes... Things don't work out the way we hope. The Yankees lost games six and seven, and I could not cancel my order. So the shirt came in the mail, and it came in the mail yesterday. (laughs) There it is. My thumbs down t-shirt. Yeah, which will always remind me that sometimes things don't work out the way we hope. And opening this package yesterday was like ripping open the sore wound of the loss. But anytime I see this, it will remind me of the cruel joke I played on myself. (laughs) Sometimes things don't work out the way we hope. Now, this can be things like maybe going online and trying to replicate the perfect dessert that you saw. You get the recipe, and you're like, I'm going to make this dessert. It looks amazing. And then sometimes things don't work out the way we hope. Maybe it's your best laid plans for a dream vacation. You, you have this perfect vacation planned out, and then you get there, and it rains the entire time and ruins it. Maybe it's a new job that you get, and you think, this job is going to fulfill all my needs to feel important, or it's going to meet all my financial needs, and then come to find out it's not what you thought it would be. Or maybe, on a more serious note, it's the life you dreamed for yourself or the life you dreamed for someone you love. Sometimes things don't work out the way we hope. Then what? So this morning we're continuing our series through Exodus, and we're looking at chapters 5 and 6. Moses, after 40 years in the desert, is heading back to Egypt. And last week, Pastor Rob Kirk talked about chapters 3 and 4. And in chapters 3 and 4, Moses has what we call the burning bush experience, this amazing God encounter. He sees a bush that is burning in the wilderness. It is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And so he walks up to it, and out of the middle of the burning bush comes the voice of God. 
God speaks to him and calls Moses to be a deliverer. God reveals himself as the Lord and says, I am who I am. God confirms his call on Moses with, with miraculous signs, and then God partners him up with, with Aaron and sends them back to Egypt. And at the end of chapter 4, Moses and Aaron make the trek back to Egypt from Midian, and they gather together the elders and all the people of Israel, and they say, hey, we got something we want to tell you. And Moses and Aaron tell the Hebrews everything that God has told them and actually re, re, uh, reduplic- or duplicates some of the miracles and signs so that they can see and believe. And this is their response. In Exodus four thirty-one, it says that the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Imagine what this meant to the people of Israel. Imagine the feeling of hope, freedom, deliverance. 400 years they and their ancestors have been enslaved by the Egyptians. 400 years they've been in bondage. And now Moses and Aaron come with the word of God and with miracles and signs and they see it and they fall on their face and they worship God because they say God has finally heard us. Now imagine what this meant for Moses and Aaron. I'm sure Moses and Aaron are like, oh, this is, this is actually happening. Like, this is real. They believe us. We're going to be heroes. Like we're going to be legends. And so chapter 4 ends, and they've returned to Egypt, and the people of Israel are excited that they're there, and Moses and Aaron are brimming with confidence and courage. And then Exodus chapter 5 begins, and Moses and Aaron, with all their confidence and all their courage, they go before Pharaoh, and look what it says in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now remember, Pharaoh wanted to be the God of the Hebrews. So thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. That's the phrase that we're going to hear over and over that Moses, he sounds like a broken record. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh basically says, Who do you think you are and who does this God think he is? Does he know who I am? Why would I obey him? Look at this this, uh, empire that I've built. Look uh, Look at these pyramids that are being constructed in my honor. Look at the glory of Egypt. You're two shepherds. Who is your Lord? And that question that Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? That's the most important central question in this entire book. Who is the Lord? Is it Yahweh or is it Pharaoh? And we're going to learn, especially next week when we look at the plagues, it's, it's Yahweh. But let's pause for a second and realize it's also the most important question in our lives today. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord of your life? Who is the Lord of, over your heart? Who reigns and rules over your desires, over your decisions? Who is the Lord? Let's keep reading. In verse 3, Moses continues to reply to Pharaoh and says, well, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. So what do we make of Moses' request? It's a little bit unusual because he he doesn't actually 
some people aren't sure about Moses' request here because all he says is, let us go a three days journey so that we can have a feast. He doesn't actually say, let us go, go, go. Like, let us leave. It's kind of like, let us go and then maybe we'll return. Moses here is most likely, he's testing the waters on Pharaoh. He's trying to see if, how will Pharaoh respond to this relatively reasonable request? Because if he will not respond well to this request, then forget the bigger request. Kids know how to, how to navigate this game really well. You ask your parents a reasonable thing, and then if it goes badly, you don't, you don't make the real ask. You don't really ask what you want, right? You're kind of testing the waters. Moses is kind of testing the waters here. And actually, according to other ancient, um, ancient literature, this is not an unusual request. There's evidence from other documents, not in the Bible, but other documents that people who were enslaved were let go for times to go worship their gods. This was not, uh, this had some existing protocol to it. And then Moses gives this, seems to give this warning that if we don't do this, pestilence and the sword will fall on us, which maybe is a foreshadowing of what's going to come with the 10 plagues. We're not really sure about Moses' request, what he's asking, but we are sure of one thing when we read this text. Moses' confidence rests on the fact that there's a little phrase in there, that God has met with us. God has met with us. In Acts 4.13, in the New Testament, there's some unlearned men who are standing before the educated religious people. And despite the fact that there's nothing very impressive about them, they say, to each, they say about them, we can tell that they've been with Jesus. Or more importantly, that Jesus had been with them. That's really the distinguishing factor for believers. That's what gives us our confidence. That's what gives us our courage is that God has met with us, that we have been with Jesus and that he has been with us. So they make this case before Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not impressed. And Pharaoh's reaction is the exact opposite of what they had hoped. When you're a kid, you learn certain things you shouldn't say to your parents because they're going to backfire on you. One of the things I learned as a kid not to say to my mom was, I'm bored right? You guys know why. Because as soon as you tell your parents you're bored, they go, oh, you're bored? I got a hundred things you can do. Wash the dishes, clean your room, take out the trash, read your brother a book, you know, whatever it is, like, you don't say, and after two or three times, you just realize, all right, I'm just going to internalize that feeling from from now on. This kind of happens with Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. Basically, Pharaoh says, you got enough time to think this up, you have enough time on your hands to come to me and to make this request, then you're too bored. And we're going to make you work harder. And so their primary job was to make bricks for the pyramids and for the ziggurats and for the different structures they were putting together. And so Pharaoh says, now when you make bricks, no one's going to bring you the straw that you need. You have to go get the straw and make the bricks. So apparently, Previous to this, the Israelites were just putting the bricks together, and somebody else, I don't know who, was bringing them the straw. And now Pharaoh says, no, now you've got to do both. That sounds bad, but it gets worse, because Pharaoh says, you've got to do both, and you've got to keep meeting your quota. So less resources, more work, same quota. I just described some of your guys' jobs, right? You've got less resources and more work, but the same things are expected of you. Straw was essential to making bricks because straws reinforce the clay, and they help the bricks stay intact, so it wasn't an option. So in the matter of one day, things go from bad to worse, and now Moses and Aaron kind of limp back to the Israelites. And this time, the interaction is totally different than the first time. Look at this in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came from Pharaoh. And they said to them, this is the Israelites, the elders speaking to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink 
in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. Talk about a change in tone. They've shifted from, there are heroes, there are rescuers, let's praise God, to, this is all your fault. You've made us stink, which basically means you've made us uh, appear to be bad. You've made us repulsive to Pharaoh. And now you've actually armed him with the weapon to kill us and to destroy us. And look at Moses' response in verse 22. It says, then Moses turned to the Lord. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You know what I love about this? A couple things. I love that Moses turned to the Lord. He didn't turn to Aaron. He didn't turn to the elders. He didn't go, you know, blog about it and post on Facebook about it. He turned to the Lord. And the other thing I love about this is I love his honesty. Sometimes we are afraid of being honest with God. As if he doesn't already know. As if he doesn't already know everything you're thinking. As if he doesn't already know your fears and your concerns and your objections. But in this text we see Moses is painfully honest before God. He is accusing God of doing certain things and he's accusing God of not doing certain things. He's saying the things you're doing I don't like and the things you're not doing I wish you would start doing. And so Moses runs into this time in his life where things did not happen the way he hoped that they would. And what I want you to notice is this, that Moses, at this moment in history, he's still smack dab in the center of God's perfect will for his life. Moses is not out of God's will, which means sometimes when things in our lives happen that are difficult, that are challenging, that cause us to want to lose hope, it doesn't mean you're out of God's will. Sometimes right in the center of his will, you will face these sort of obstacles, these sort of challenges, these sort of threats to your faith. And Moses looks around at everything, and he's, he must have had deja vu from 40 years ago. Because when he left Egypt, the Hebrews didn't trust him, and the Egyptians were endangering him. And now, Pharaoh, now Moses is back there again, 40 years later, deja vu. And I think Moses must have thought, really, 40 years for this again? A burning bush experience for this? Returning to Egypt for this? Sometimes things don't work out the way we hope. What then? Moses' response, he makes his complaint, not on his behalf really, but on the behalf of the people. He has a heart for the people. And what's most important is that he went straight to God. As I said, he turned to the Lord. Godfrey Ashby, a commentator, says this about Moses' words to God. He says, this is not atheism or even rejection of God. This is a bearing of emotions to the Almighty and taking the complaint to, quote-unquote, the head office, simply because the power to respond lies there with God himself. This is the biblical way of dealing with anger and frustration rather than suppressing it. Sometimes if you're more of a stoic person, you think I have to suppress my emotions, I have to suppress my frustration, I have to suppress my anger. Or if you are a more expressive person, you think everybody needs to know how I feel. Everyone in this room needs to know how I feel. Everyone in my neighborhood needs to know how I feel right now. And so you raise your voice, not in praise of God, but so that they can hear how angry you are. And both approaches are not the biblical approach. The biblical approach is not suppress your anger, suppress your questions, suppress your doubts, and the biblical approach is not turn every which way with them. 
The biblical approach is turn directly to God and let him have it. Give him everything that's in your heart and lay bare your emotions before him. Pray your tears. Cry your tears. Pray your fears. Bring them before God because he is the only one who actually has the power to respond to them. Internalizing him, there's no power there. Telling them to each other, I mean, there's wisdom and counsel. I understand that. But looking for real power to change real circumstances from other people, we don't have that power. We can't do that for one another. But God can. And God responds in Exodus chapter 6. And let's look at what God says. He says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Verse 1. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. This is a repeating of what he said to him in the desert. I am who I am. I am the Lord. And now he reminds him of his covenant. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Moses, you're part of something bigger. You're part of a bigger story. This started way before you. This is going to end way after you. Trust me, I know where you are in the story. I'm going to tell the story. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. What God is saying here is basically in Genesis, we see God primarily as a promise maker. But in Exodus, we're about to see him as the promise keeper. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew God, but they didn't know him as the promise keeper. They just knew him as the promise maker. And Moses is about to see him as the promise keeper. Verse four, he says, I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God is saying to Moses, yeah, I'm going to keep my promise to you, but more than that, I'm gonna keep my promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And here's the thing that we need to notice about what God says to Moses here. It's nothing new. Everything he says in Exodus chapter 6, he said in Exodus 3 and 4. He's already said it to him. He's just reminding him of it. When things don't go the way we hope, we don't need new information. Although that's what we want, isn't it? We want new information about the exact situation we're dealing with. God, why did this happen? Why did you allow this to happen? And what we want is new information. We want new insight. We want something specific to where we're at. But we learn here that when things don't go the way we hope, what we really need is not new information, but what we really need is just reminders from God of what we already know, what our hearts already know, what we've already been standing in, what we've been trusting in, what we've been believing in. We need God to remind us through his word and his spirit. See, the Christian life is not about discovering new truths every day. It's about being reminded of what we already know and then applying it in new ways and in new seasons. One of the things I find myself telling people a lot this year is we're learning to trust God in new ways. We're learning to trust God in new seasons. Trusting God's not new. That's what our lives have been built on. But the season is new, right? So it's the same truth applied in a new way, in a new season to our lives by the grace of Jesus and the help of the Holy Spirit. And then I want you to see this. This is where God really starts to encourage Moses' heart. He gives him all these I will statements. Listen to this, beginning in verse 6. He says, Say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will 
bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession and then he frames it again with, I am the Lord. I love that passage. I love those promises. I love that certainty. I love God speaking with certainty about the future. What do we do when we are discouraged? What do we do when things haven't gone the way that we hoped? What do we do when we're having a terrible day, a terrible week, a terrible month, or a terrible year? Well, we see in Moses a couple things. First, we must run to God. We run to God. We don't run from God. We run to him. He's the only source of hope and peace. And so we run from him. We're running from the only thing that we need. We run to him. We turn to him. And then we allow God's word and God's spirit to remind us of who he is. And then lastly, we rehearse those truths. We preach them to our own hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin, sorry, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher, said this one time. Have you realized that most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Do you realize that most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? This is what it means. The most important preacher in your life is you. Not a pastor, not someone you listen to on TV, not someone you listen to. The most important preacher in your life is you. Why? Because you're always preaching something to yourself. You're always saying something to yourself. Your self-talk is eight to ten times faster than anything I could say to you right now. That's just, that's just science. It just is. You can have an internal dialogue with yourself. Some of you have been doing it. You've already planned out your lunch and your afternoon. Like, and you're able to do that without really losing your attention because your, di- your internal dialogue works that way. And so this idea of speaking truth to our own hearts, rehearsing the truth. And in this passage, with all these I will statements, I just want to point out to you before we finish, that in in, in all of these I will statements, there are promises about the nature of God and the work of God. And I'm going to call them gospel promises. These are gospel promises of how God saves his people. We see four specific ways in which God saves his people. Or maybe a better way of saying it is we see four different metaphors that is used throughout the scriptures to explain God's saving work on the behalf of his people. And we need to know them. We need to look at them. We need to rehearse them. We need to speak them to each other. We need to be able to speak them to ourselves because when things don't go the way you hope, you need to find hope in something that is unshakable, that is unchanging, that is certain, and that is true. So there's four gospel metaphors. The first one is found in verse six, and it's simply the word freedom. It's the word freedom. He says, I will bring you out from under the burden. I will deliver you from slavery. One of the ways that God saves us, one of the gospel metaphors that we need to know, and we need to tell ourselves, and we need to tell one another, is that we've been set free, that we are free, that we've been brought out of bondage, that we've been brought out from underneath the chains. And here's the thing about Christian freedom. You didn't free yourself. You weren't Houdini locked up in a straitjacket with a bunch of chains dropped in a bucket of water. And then you impressed everybody by figuring how to get out, dislocating your shoulders or something, whatever crazy stuff they do. You couldn't get out of these chains. You didn't have the key. You didn't have the solution. 
you couldn't reach the lock. So when we talk about freedom here, we're talking about God's sovereign work in setting you free. That he comes and he breaks the bondages in your life. He breaks the chains over your lives. And he sovereignly, just like he's about to do with the people of Israel, he brings us out of bondage and he brings us into freedom. But just like he did with the people of Israel, when he brought them out, he brought them out of Egypt, but then he gives them, we'll see eventually at the end of the series, he gives them the law, which means he gives them a new master. Now at that point we might go, wait a minute, I thought we were free. What's this talk about a new master? I don't want a new master. I want to be free. The truth is, is everyone has some sort of a master. Everyone lives for something. Everyone lives for some reason, whether it's success, whether it's power, control, pleasure. Everyone has something that is their master that they serve. And so the question is not, do we have a master? The question is, is the master that we have able to set us free? Can we serve in love and be devoted out of, uh, out of deep appreciation? In Deuteronomy chapter 15, there's a really interesting uh, part of the law where they talk about slaves and masters. Now, in the Old Testament, when you see this word slaves, especially in Deuteronomy 15, this is not the sort of slavery that plagued our, our country for years. This is more like indentured servanthood. Do you know what that is? Indentured servanthood means you, you need money, you need a job, so you work for somebody, and they pay you to work for them, and after a certain amount of time, you actually can work your way free. Okay, so it's, it's a little bit different. And in this Deuteronomy chapter 15 passage, the law says that if a fellow Hebrew sells himself or herself to you because they need money and they need a job and they serve you for six years, then in the seventh year, you have to set, you have to set them free. So this is, not, this is not servanthood forever. There's an end to this. Not only that, but it says when the seven year comes, don't send them away empty-handed. Give them a generous farewell gift from your flock in your threshing floor and your wine press. So give them some lamb, give them some bread, give them some wine. Share with them from the bounty with which God has blessed you. And here's why, verse 15. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God redeemed you. He brought you into freedom. That's why I'm giving you this command. So it's connected to this story in Exodus. But then in verse 16, I I love this, this instruction. It says, but, but, Suppose your servant says, I will not leave you because he loves you and your family and he has done well with you. Well, then what do you do? In that case, take an awl, which is like a a, a hammer and a nail, and push it through his earlobe into the door. After that, he will be your servant for life. And it says to do the same for the female servant. So what is this old custom? What does it have to do with us? Essentially what he's saying is, after somebody has served six years, by the law, you have to set them free. But if at that point they say, you know what, I so love my master, I want to keep serving you. I want to keep serving in your house. Then they would say, okay, so in that case, then take them to the doorpost of the house, put the ear against the door, and basically pierce their ear. Don't leave them there. Take the nail out and, and, and let, them, let them continue. And so that was always, for the rest of their lives, the mark that they were a love slave, a slave out of devotion and out of love. It's this beautiful picture because the servant allows a nail to pierce through their ear into the wooden post of the door as a sign that he will serve that master forever out of love and devotion. This is serving while you're free. This is serving in freedom. But years later, Jesus Christ allows nails not to pierce his ear, but to pierce through his wrist and to pierce through his feet into the wooden post of a cross. Why? To set us free. 
free to what? Live however we want, do whatever we want, be whoever we want, make our own definition of what we should look like and who we should be? No. He was pierced so that we could be set free to serve him, just like the servants would be pierced to signify that they were free, but they chose to serve. This is a gospel metaphor. You've been set free, and because you've been set free, now this might sound like it's an oxymoron, but it's true. Because you've been set free, you should serve. Because you didn't set yourself free, but because God set you free, now your heart should be so devoted to the one who freed you that now service is not an act of, of being enslaved. It's actually an act of great freedom, an act of great joy. And that's a gospel promise. The second gospel metaphor that we see is later on in verse 6, and it's the metaphor of redemption. He says, I will redeem you with the outstretched arm and with the great acts of judgment. Redemption is when you buy something back that really was already yours. That's what redemption is. You pay a price to get something back. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Hosea, and God tells Hosea to go marry a woman who is a prostitute. And he marries her, and he has children with her. And after they have children, she runs off on him, and she goes back into her lifestyle of prostitution. And God says to Hosea, I want you to go buy her back. She's basically a sex slave, and she's standing in the sex slave market in front of everybody, standing up on a podium, most likely unclothed, standing there with men bidding on her. And Hosea, who is, his, who is her rightful husband, she's broken his heart. He walks into that market, and he bids on her, and he redeems her, and he buys her back. And he buys her back and says, now you belong to me. This is what Jesus has done for us. We belong to him because he created us. It says that God created us, and at creation, he breathes his life into us. That's why you and I are sitting here this morning. But then we reject the life that God offers us. And so what he does is because we choose death over life, he gives us a hope and a way in Jesus Christ so that as we place our trust and hope in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God comes and breathes life again into us. But this time it's eternal life. It's life over the dead places of our hearts. And in doing so, he made us, but he remakes us. He owns us, but he buys us back. This is what he did. And the price that he paid, of course, was the life and death of Jesus Christ. Redemption, he's bought us back. The third gospel metaphor that we see in here is a wonderful one. It's the metaphor of adoption. I love this one because I think it's one we can all uh, envision very easily. You might know somebody. You may have been adopted. You may have adopted somebody. John Piper, a famous preacher out in Minnesota, said one time that adoption is the gospel made visible. I love that. I love that. And uh, what we see here in verse 7 is that God says, I'm going to take you to be my people. I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to make you my family. Enemies turned into sons. Enemies turned into daughters. Well, how can God adopt us? How can he bring us in? He brings us in even though we are enemies of his, and he calls us son and daughter because his one and only son was willing to be cast out. Because Jesus was cast out on our behalf, we can be welcomed in. And so now we have this powerful gospel metaphor that we can speak to our hearts. When things are not going the way that we had hoped that they would go, we can remind ourselves, but I'm a son of God. I'm a child of the most high God. I've been adopted. The adoption is final. The papers are final. I'm in the family of God. And then the last metaphor that we see in this text in verse eight is the metaphor of inheritance. He says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to you and I will give it to you as a possession. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an eternal inheritance 
that nothing can touch. There's nothing that can happen on this side of eternity that can affect the inheritance that is waiting for you. The, the inheritance of glory, the inheritance of the goodness. You know, our greatest reward, our greatest treasure, of course, is Jesus. But in, in this context, he's talking about the land that the, that the Israelites are supposed to enter, the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. Well, what is the land that we are promised that we will enter into someday? It's the new heavens and it's the new earth. And that is our inheritance. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back, and you're going to be with me. This is an inheritance that every believer has. Why are you having an inheritance? It's because of this third metaphor. You've been adopted in, right? That's how you get an inheritance. You're part of the family. We have this inheritance because we're part of the family. In Revelation 21, verse 7, it says this, All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is a picture of heaven. And still at the end of time, when we're looking at heaven, they're talking about the inheritance that is ours. How do we know that the inheritance is ours? Well, in Ephesians 1.14, it says that the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance as he promised. So when God, or sorry, when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to fill the believers, that was the sort of the, the seal, that was the guarantee of the inheritance. You know why your inheritance is secure and sure? Because the Holy Spirit has come. Because the Holy Spirit is here and he's sealing you for the day of redemption. So we have these four gospel truths that we need to tell our hearts over and over. Freedom, redemption, adoption, inheritance. I've been set free. I've been bought back. I've been brought in. I'm adopted. And there's an inheritance, a sure inheritance waiting for me where moth and rust cannot corrupt. So you're thinking, okay, Moses goes and says these wonderful, powerful things to the Hebrews. Surely they were like fired up. All right, we get it. We believe. We're inspired. We're back on board. Let's go after it. Nope. Verse 9 says this, and we're going to close. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery. Here's what we see at the end of this story. The very reason they needed the promises were the very reasons they couldn't hear them. The very reason they needed those promises were the very reasons they couldn't receive them. This is the nature of sin. Sin will keep you from what you need most by causing you to focus on the things that can't do anything for you. Causing you to look at your circumstances. Causing you to listen to yourself instead of talk to yourself. We might look at them and go, oh, what's wrong with them? How could they not believe? But the truth is, is you and I are not that much different from them. We forget the gospel. We believe other gospels. We believe that other things are good news when they aren't. And the gospel doesn't move us. And the gospel doesn't change us. And the gospel doesn't shape us. We don't live free, do we? Let's just be honest. We don't live free. We still live bound up by our fears and our past and our regrets and our uncertainties. We don't, we don't always live free. We don't, and then on the other hand, we live as if we still belong to ourselves. Like I, I live as if I'm still my own and nobody can tell me otherwise. I can eat whatever I want to eat. No one's going to tell me otherwise. We, we have this unshakable sense that we're on the outside, that we haven't been brought into the family and we feel like we have no secure future. We look at our circumstances. We listen to ourselves. We don't know sometimes how to speak life and truth into our own hearts. But God in this text in chapter 6, he finishes everything he says with one final reminder to, to Moses. And he says, he reminds him again, I'm going to defeat Pharaoh. 
I'm going to defeat Pharaoh and I'm going to set you free. We have the victory. This, I was thinking about this this week. When you win a gold medal at the Olympics, as soon as the race is over or the game is over, it's yours, but you're not wearing the medal yet, right? You're not standing on the podium yet. You haven't heard your anthem yet. There's a little time, right? There's a commercial break. And then they come back and they do it. And I was thinking maybe a way of explaining where we live right now as the people of God is we live between the end of the race and standing on the podium. We won. Christ won. It's over. We don't have to fear. We're not battling for victory. We're battling from victory, right? So it's over. It's a step. But we're not, we don't have it around our neck yet. We're not standing on the podium. We haven't heard the anthem yet but it's a sure thing that we will. Sometimes things don't work out the way we hope. Then what? Then we look to the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope of being brought out into freedom, the hope of being bought back, which is redemption, the hope of being brought in, which is adoption, and the hope of being brought home, which is inheritance. I want to play a song for you in just a moment because obviously in this season that we've all walked through, I find myself this year thinking about heaven a lot more than I ever have. I, I, I wonder if as Christians we don't think about heaven enough. I feel like on our worst days we need to think about heaven because it gives us hope. On your best days you need to think about heaven, otherwise you're going to fall in love with this earth. And on every day in between we need to be mindful of heaven because what do we do when things don't work out the way we hope? we have to be able to preach good news to our own hearts. And some of the best news we have is that the things we talked about this morning, freedom, uh, redemption, adoption, inheritance, in heaven, it's, it's going to be all there. We're going to experience it in all of its fullness. And we're going to look back, and I think we're going to sort of marvel at the things that stole our joy. I think we're going to look back someday and go, wow, I wasted a lot of time I lost a lot of sleep over that. I'm not making light. You guys know what my family has gone through, so I'm not making light of grief and suffering. It's a real deal. But we can't lose sight of heaven because someday we'll look back and we'll see God will work even our worst agony into his glory, and we'll see it all work in reverse. This week, this song has been strengthening my heart. It's a song by Matt Redman when he talks about heaven, and the chorus will be familiar to you. It's an old hymn. And you can sing along. But I wanted us to take some time this morning before we close in prayer. And just in our seats, listen to this song together.